Friends, as we uh, continue in worship, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. This is the second half of Hebrews 10, and if you're not familiar with where Hebrews is, um, if you're maybe new with us this morning, once you get past uh, some of the books we're most familiar with into Timothy, Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Timothy, um, if you find the book of James or 1st and 2nd Peter, you've gone a little bit too far. Find your way back to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're picking up, continuing on, we're finishing up this book of Hebrews that we started in the early part of summer, and we'll finish a little bit in this fall, bridging into some time on hospitality. But as we get into this second half, one thing we should uh, remember is that what's written here is written at a great cost. Um, The people in the original hearers of this letter, they've suffered persecution. If you read the whole book, you get the sense that there is even some betrayal that took place. And what they're doing is trying to paint this great picture of who Jesus is as we understand that through the Old Testament into today. And so this part of the chapter, it will start off with some very uh, tabernacle-focused language. Um, And so if you've been with us for some of those, that'll echo back to other places where we've talked about Jesus as our true tabernacle, that Jesus is our connection point between heaven and earth. But we'll go from that tabernacle language and then be digging into a little bit of, okay, so now what? Now that we have Jesus, now that we understand better who Jesus is and what he's done for us, now what? And it's that now what that we will pick up with today. So in just a moment, I'll pray um, for the reading of God's word, and then we'll read Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. After the reading of God's word, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you are grateful, I invite you to respond with, thanks be to God. But before we do so, let's pray. Christ, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our primary concern. As we hear these words, may we appreciate that they were written thousands of years ago. And may we also appreciate that they live in us today. For your Holy Spirit is living and active. And so speak to us today, speak to us afresh. Speak to us from the depths of time and into the anticipation of the future. In all of this, may you reign as Lord over our hearts, over our minds, and may you live in your word that it may live for us today. In your holy name we pray, O Christ. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Unswervingly. Hebrews 10 verse 23 gives us a wonderful word, unswervingly, to hold on to. And different words have been used, unwavering, unflinching, resolute, but un unswervingly is a helpful word. I think it helps capture the action that's intended within the verse. Unswervingly, we hold to the hope that we confess, knowing that he who promised, that is Christ, is faithful. So we hold unswervingly. Maybe to understand what we want to get at with unswervingly, we need to think about when is it that we swerve and when is it a good idea? I have it on good authority from a certified driver's education instructor that swerving is advised against when you are learning to drive. You are not told to swerve away from the thing in front of you. And though sometimes that means we're going to have to slam on our brakes, I was going to say pump the brakes, but anti-lock brake systems have replaced that with slam on the brakes and close our eyes and wait for the dreaded thunk thunk of squirrel or whatever it is, you don't swerve. You'll cause more damage to yourself and those around you if you swerve. We are told to drive unswervingly. And we should think about when is it that we swerve and why do we? One reason, particularly a bad one, though it's all bad, is we swerve when we're angry. People swerve when they have road rage and they cut over against somebody ever so quickly with a little bit of a swerve to let the, to let the other driver know we didn't like what just happened. People swerve in road rage, and we also swerve in fear. We swerve as a reaction for whatever we're on course and collision course with, we swerve away. And yet we are told, we are instructed in driver's ed to drive unswervingly. And why? Because keeping control is what we need to do, and swerving is a greater loss of control. And here in Hebrews, we pick up that word of unswervingly, as the way that we live our life of faith, the ways in which we hold on and hold steady. We live our life of faith unswervingly. If anger and fear are the reactions that make us swerve while driving, 
we ought to consider that the same reactions are those that will give us in the life of faith. Our anger or fear will make us swerve away. And here, the author of Hebrews says, hold unswervingly. Fix yourself resolute on Christ, who is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And so to borrow language from Hebrews chapter 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter, pioneer, progenitor of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, for Christ is faithful. And as we fix our eyes on him, we can live our life of faith unswervingly, holding on steady to the hope that we have. Now, if we drive unswervingly, that doesn't mean dull and boring. It is God's wisdom and God's Holy Spirit that teaches us when do we need to put the pedal to the metal and go for it, and when do we need to actually be cautious and hold back, all so that we can live our life of faith unswervingly, not reactive based on our anger or on our fear, not reacting to our neighbor or making our impatience or, oh, I don't like how this is being done, so I'm going to lash out in anger. That's swerving. And not holding away from or turning away from our convictions, swerving away from them. That's fear. But rather to hold unswervingly to the hope that we have. Unswervingly, though, to fix our eyes on Jesus in that way, that's going to take some help, right? Because there's something working against us in this There's nothing that gives the devil greater joy than those moments where we swerve, where we act out of character. Maybe we reacted out of anger. Maybe we reacted out of fear. And maybe we feel so justified about it that we don't think we did anything wrong. And yet, Christ would correct us and say we swerved. There's a force working against us that delights when we swerve, delights when our anger or fear take over. And that is the devil, our adversary, who wants us to swerve. Who wants that loss of control so that damage is done? But we are told to hold unswervingly to Jesus. And I know for me, and I suspect for you, to hold unswervingly, to stay the course when things are hard, because life is going to throw circumstances at us that will make us want to swerve, that will make swerving away seem like a good idea. I know to hold unswervingly, I need a communion of saints which we'll get to in Hebrews 11 and 12 as well. This is work that we don't do on our own. If we as individuals and if we as a body are to hold unswervingly to Christ, if we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we need one another. Which is why if we get unswervingly in verse 23, if we go just down to the next verse, verse 24, we are told to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up on meeting together, meaning don't give up on each other. Don't give up on the ways in which you grow together. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on your neighbor. And be close to your neighbor. Be with them when they're tempted to give up, whether on Jesus or on other good things. Friends, the original audience of this letter had experienced people swerving against them. That's why we get some of this challenging language about um, falling into the hands of God and the, the retribution that will happen, that there's no other, there's nothing else after this. That the law, in all of its goodness, still was not sufficient, so Jesus came into the world. But to say, okay, if Jesus wasn't enough, there's not some next option after this. That Jesus is where the road ends, that Jesus is where we fix our eyes. So the author of Hebrews is saying, if you knew Christ and swerved away, 
there's not some other road that you'll be getting on. So we need to course correct. And this comes at a cost. They lost property. They were persecuted. Sometimes they had to stand side by side, lockstep, linking arms with those who were also suffering. But we do all of this unswervingly as we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not losing our course, not getting pushed away by life circumstances or the times when our heart is too filled with anger or fear to stay the course. Unswervingly. So as we launch into a new program year, I wonder what it looks like to hold unswervingly and to do that, what it looks like to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up on meeting together, but encouraging one another daily and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if we back the clocks up a few weeks from today, at some level, there is a spreadsheet of things that needs to get filled. We need the people in the right spots. Spots need to get filled to make sure there's enough teachers and helpers. There's enough children to worship and Sunday school and Kids Quest volunteers. We need to make sure that there's youth group leaders and helpers. We need to make sure that the spots are filled. Pretty soon we'll be looking to fill the roster for Kids Hope so that there's the spots are filled for the right person with the right student across the street. We need the spots filled in the sound booth and on the stage for coffee servers and greeters. Consistory nominations are open. We need those spots filled too. But as we think about those, let's not lose sight this day on kickoff Sunday, as we think about a program year, to think that the work we do is just filling a spot or checking a box. Let's not lose sight. The logistic needs are there, and that's true. But let's not lose sight of the purpose to which we do the things that we do, both here and elsewhere. Our call is to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And so whatever spot you are filling, and as kickoff is maybe most on our minds today, let's keep in mind that your purpose as a teacher, as a helper, as a volunteer in anything is to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Which means if you're working with students and children, you have a purpose to spur them on towards love of Christ, towards love of neighbor, to spur them on towards good deeds, to teach not that good deeds are the currency by with which we pay our sin, that could only be paid by the blood of Christ, but rather good deeds are the mode of gratitude through which we live out of our love for Christ. Your purpose working with children and youth and students is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, both those who you're teaching, but also those who you're working with. Because don't we have those days where we're doing something, we're volunteering, we're helping? Ah, and it was a rough day. It was a long 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes. On those days, we need to spur one another on. To have that buddy system approach afterwards and say, that was a rough day, wasn't it? Why was it rough for you? <laughs> Obviously, that one was screaming, that one wouldn't listen, Blah. We need to have that buddy system in place to where we say, you know what? Good. We got through today. God is still at work even in the moments where we don't see anything happening. And we will spur one another on, not with false hope, but with the hope of Christ who is faithful, faithful in all that we do, that we will continue to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, that we will keep loving even those in our midst who maybe seem a little bit difficult to love. 
that we will want to keep serving, even when we seem frustrated and overwhelmed or stretched too thin by the good deeds that we're trying to do. We hold unswervingly towards Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on him by spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, I don't do much in the equestrian realm. I'm not a big fan of horses. I'm sorry. I really like that verse in the Psalms that says, don't be like the horse or mule, which are dumb and must be led, be led by the bit and bridle. I think it's funny. Oh man, Annalyn, if looks could kill. Um, <laughs> but it is in the Bible, so. Um, but I do know that to spur something on, I know we don't usually use like the cowboy spurs that often. Um, I don't know as much about that. But I do know you can't spur something on from a distance, can you? How do you spur on a horse if you're not riding it? Do you take your boot off and throw it at it? How effective is that? No. Spurring one another on towards love and good deeds means that we are working together. You cannot spur someone else on if you are not in proximity to them. And so whether it is the point where you're saying, I am a prayer partner for this person, I'm a prayer partner because I need to stay some connection with this, you don't do that outside of proximity. We cannot spur one another on if we're removed from it. That's like the critics of the world that we don't need any more of that stands off to the side and tells everybody else how they should do their job. That's like trying to spur somebody on by throwing your boot at them. And unless you have a shoe store's worth of boots, you can only do that maybe once or twice. And it's not going to actually get any gain traction or movement. Spurring one another on North Holland means that we serve together. And we do this in all of the different programs. We do this with all of the teachers and helpers and volunteers. But don't we also do this at coffee time? Because don't you think that when you're serving coffee or treats that someday somebody going through line who put their church face on to get here is thinking to themselves, I should have just stayed home. Don't you think that there's that moment where all we really need is a cup of coffee and a snack because that's as much as we can get excited about for on today. Don't you think that there's all these different places where we spur one another on? I know that Aaron would love if we'd spur a few more male vocalists to join on stage to, to sing. That would be great too. But don't we spur one another on in worship because we're trying to worship God together, to lift our voices together. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it's not just about being nice to each other. It's not just about being cheerleaders, though cheerleading as an encouragement is an important thing that we do for one another but it is to hold one another that we might hold to our hope unswervingly. So what does this program year look like to you? It's September. Spring break will be here, well, ever so far away now, but gets here so quick. Then the end of school lets out. Is this a year where we stand off to the side and throw a boot at somebody? Or is this a year where we say, nope, I'm riding with everybody else. I will spur on those around me towards love of Christ and love of neighbor, and towards good deeds, not as a way to pay off our debt of sin, but as a mode of gratitude for living, that we do this together so that we can be taken off, talked off the ledge a little bit when we want to swerve out of anger, that we can be encouraged to stay the course when we're tempted to swerve out of fear, that we don't turn away, that we don't turn on each other, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Because the folks who were reading this letter, they knew people who had turned away, those who had even turned against them. And so there is some hope for God's 
vengeance in that. And there's a reminder to say, hold the course, because this really, really matters. And also in verse 39, the closing of the chapter, we're told this reminder that of all the unswerving, of all the spurring one another on, we are reminded why we do this, because it's in who we are. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we belong to those who have faith and are saved. Once and for all, our debts are paid. But we need reminders, don't we? Which is why we come to communion. We come to the table today. Because we need to remember that Jesus died for us. And that there are those times and moments where we get a little bit forgetful and Jesus knew that we'd get forgetful. So he gave us a reminder. There's times where we're going to be spiritually hungry and we're not sure how to satisfy that appetite. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a meal. There are times where God seems far off and distant and we need a reminder that we can see and taste and touch that Christ is near to us. As Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. May communion be one of those times where we taste and see and touch that the Lord is good, that we're reminded in our mind and in our heart as individuals and as the communion of saints that Christ is here present with us. And so, friends, we come to this table in remembrance, communion, and hope. We come remembering that Christ died for us and that by his sacrifice on the cross, we are given both assurance of salvation and the promise of eternal life. We come remembering that Jesus Christ was born into the world, that he lived for us, that he died for us. And as we say in baptism, and as we've had a privilege to say in baptism a lot lately and a few more times coming up, all of this he did for you, though you know nothing of it yet. But we love because Christ first loved us. We come in remembrance and in communion, knowing that if we are to grow or if we are to abide in Christ, then we need his presence. We must dwell with one another and we must be a part of the true vine, which is Christ, if we are to bear fruit. We come in remembrance. We come in communion with the living Christ and with one another with whom we share the bread and the cup. And friends, we come in hope. We don't have to look very far to know that the world is not all as it should be. And so we come in hope, the hope that we hold unswervingly to, for he who promised, that is Christ, is faithful. It is not a naive optimism, but it is the foundation of our faith to look unswervingly at Jesus and say, in you and in you alone, O Lord, I put my hope. And the table is a reminder of the remembrance, communion, and hope that we have.